Hello, I'm Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. I'm a writer, activist, author, and ordained Zen priest, and you're listening to Mindful by Design, a Himalaya learning audio course all about mindfulness, meditation, evidence of how it all works, and some guidance to make it work for you. Over the next episodes and accompanying meditations, I'll introduce you to some core principles of the mindfulness practice by way of both science and lived experience. To access the exclusive guided meditations, go to Himalaya.com mindful and enter promo code mindful at checkout to get your first 14 days free. Let's get started. On today's episode, we get to see how someone that does pretty big work in the world designs their mindfulness practice to meet big challenges. Here are some of the things we'll explore today. How can mindfulness work for you no matter what your background is, where you grew up, or even what your religion is or isn't? How once you've started a mindfulness practice, you can begin to bring it into your life. You can even use the mindful breath practice we've done together to see how it works when listening. That brings us to my conversation with Congressman Tim Ryan. I'm very excited to have Congressman Ryan with us today. He is the representative of Ohio's 13th District and notably in 2019 announced his candidacy for President of the United States with the promise of bringing mindfulness to the White House. Representative Ryan is also the author of Healing America, How a Simple Practice Can Help Us Recapture the American Spirit which features his take on how mindfulness can reinvigorate our core American values and transform and revitalize our communities. I chose to speak with the Congressman for this episode because first of all, he helps us see that even in times of divisiveness, politicians can be really genuine, likable people that care passionately about the world we live in and the culture we create. He's going to share with us about his own mindfulness practice and also give us a little bit of a window into how a mindfulness practice can be helpful during these election times and more broadly to help heal America. Sit back for this illuminating conversation in which you get to hear why I call him Congressman Everyman. Now on to our conversation. From the time that we have met and, I, and then I kind of did some digging into you. We we originally met, I don't know if you know, it was really right after your first book came out. You know, it was named A Mindful Nation still. And so I was like, who is this guy? And I have come to think of you as Congressman Everyman, where you come from, the, the earthiness uh, that you express, the down-to-earthness, the, uh, the enthusiasm, and and I think, you know, especially now to express the idea of hopefulness has a courage to it uh, that I feel like is uh, lacking in a lot of spaces. And so I really appreciate you introducing yourself in that way because it, it, it fulfills my own, <laughs> my own imagination about who you are and what you represent and having you here to illuminate a little bit about what it is you see happening in our country right now, how it is that mindfulness, which some people may think is like a far-flung practice from 
you know, a Midwestern Catholic guy, you know, it, you know, that's in Congress. I mean, it, it, in, in many ways, it defies people's imagination of who it is that does, quote unquote, I'm doing little quote things with my fingers, like who it is that does this stuff. So how did you how did you get there, first of all? Well, through sports, um, I, you know, grew up, I was the kid who loved playing football, loved playing basketball. You know, my mom bought a light in our uh, driveway for me be, to be able to shoot baskets, you know, till late in the evening. I just loved, loved it, just loved uh, competing. And through that process, I got introduced to Phil Jackson, who I was just a kid, but, you know, obviously respected Michael Jordan and was in the NBA and Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, kind of the old school era. And I started um, hearing about this Zen master who coached the Chicago Bulls. And I was just completely intrigued. I mean, it was like a Joseph Campbell moment, right? When the, your eyes open and your the hair on the back of your neck stands up and you just kind of figure out like, man, I'm really interested in this. What is What are they talking about that, that gives Michael Jordan and all these guys these superpowers, you know? And so straight crass, like I want to be a better athlete kind of thing, but just super interested. And then, you know, this is really funny. I went out and bought his book called Sacred Hoops, and I, I started reading it, and I remember the, in the first few pages, he was citing books that influenced him, and it was Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, I remember was one of them. So now, and I, you know, I mean, I was not an academic. I was like, I was a slacker in school, but I was like zoned in on this. So I went out and got Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Are you kidding? Read all the way through it and didn't know what the hell it meant. <laughs> <laughs> so you Not know we share word. that. That that was my first book. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that was my entrance, and so you know, welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah, and then then an interesting thing happened. So I followed that a little bit, and had a piece of that in me throughout high school. But um, I think it was towards the end of high school, or maybe right after high school, I met a, a priest who I just loved, Father Tom, uh, Thomas Crumley at St. James Church, which was right next to our high school. And he taught me centering prayer. And it was so kind of close to my religion that I didn't feel like I was cheating on anybody, you know? Uh, and, and so I uh, learned centering prayer. And that was the beginning of the meditation journey that went to Wayne Dyer and Deepak Chopra and eventually a, a long retreat with John Cap five-day retreat with John Cabot Zen that kicked off my really more specific mindfulness practice um, that and that was in 2008 so that's that's the cliff notes version but and now here we are today continuing to try to you know learn as much as I can about some of these contemplative practices that I think are so important today uh, well for those of you that don't know John Cabot Zinn in particular is, a, is is also a colleague and friend of mine and uh, he's kind of considered the the godfather, if you will, of modern mindfulness. And uh, so if you're hearing a bunch of names and you want to be sure about which one you look up, uh, certainly John Kabat-Zinn and also the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shinru Suzuki Roshi. Tell me what does it mean to you to be in the location you are as a congressman for, you know, many of us, we uh, we, you know, we hear and we use the word congressman, but we don't really know what that life means. And and so tell me what it means to, as a congressman, bring a mindfulness practice to what it is that you're up to, which is incredibly important and, you know, affects really millions of people 
uh, both directly through the you know your particular district, but also indirectly through the relationships that you have with other Congress people, other governing figures. Uh, tell me what it means to have brought that into your life. Uh, obviously, anybody who's had some taste of mindfulness practices or contemplative practices, they know that things just start shifting at some point uh, if they do it long enough. And it could be it could be ten minutes, it could be uh, a week, it could be a month, it could be a year, whatever. Things just start shifting and moving. And and one of the things in this job is just you know first to say like it's an it's an honor for me to be a congressman. So I feel in some sense privileged to be able to be here. And then I also think the, the mindfulness practice in that context really is about, and I've always seen it this way because John and others have taught me to kind of look at the world this way, getting through the illusions and the delusions and really trying to get to the root cause of the problems that we have in the country. To me, as a, pers- as a congressman who's looking to legislate, make policy, it seems to me a good waste of time to be going around the edges and putting Band-Aids on things. Part of the problem is that's what we've been doing for a long time. We're just putting Band-Aids on things when we aren't addressing the root cause of the problem. And we could go through the whole list of inequality, the environment, agriculture, food, education, healthcare, like all of these, like we are not addressing the root causes of the problems. And and so those systems don't seem to really work the way we need them to work because they're not focused on, you know, reversing chronic disease, for example. They're worried about, okay, how do we get everybody coverage? You know, and I think you can actually do both if you get to the root cause of the problem, which is disease, which is diet, which is problems with the agriculture system. I mean, so let's keep going back and drilling down into um, what the real issues are. That's just one example. But to me, that's what mindfulness has kind of given me. I mean, if you look at my agenda across the board, it's in, in my mind anyway, and we're always open to learn and help people kind of help us sharpen it. But I want us, I want us to get to the root uh, causes of the problems. And so then apply that same awareness that comes from mindfulness practices you know, you start to look at people you're trying to work with and, okay, what's really going on here? And as you know, better than anybody, what we see underneath all of this is a lot of fear, is a lot of anger. And those are kind of those core emotions that are driving everything else, that are pushing everything else. And so mindfulness has helped me try to focus on that part of the arguments people are trying to make and then really figure out, okay, how do we alleviate some of these fears And it always comes down to, like the Dalai Lama says, it comes down to trying to establish some level of dialogue and a level of engagement uh, is you work on so well. So, you know, to me, that's mindfulness just kind of in the different aspects of being a member of Congress. Yeah, that's fantastic. I I love the the idea of, you know, going to root root causes. What I really heard when you were getting down to like working with people and seeing, you know, like, yeah, underneath there, there's fear and underneath there, there's anger and other emotions driving, you know, that it takes a lot of compassion actually to be willing to even see that and take the space to uh, recognize that that's what's going on for people, uh, you know, when you're in conflict with them. And and I think that that is a, a really profound way that many of us can think about how it is we have a mindfulness practice that's not just 
about, you know, what I'm doing here, but also how I bring it out into my relationships. And that's the, that's the idea of like having a mindful life that you design, that you, that by design, your life becomes mindful. Well, it's also, you know, I, I read this phrase, Reverend Williams, in uh, A Force for Good, which was Dan Goldman's book about the Dalai Lama with talks with the Dalai Lama. And uh, I had it in my office. I picked it up again a couple of weeks ago. And there was this great phrase. And I had to text Dan and be like, I'm stealing this, bro. Like, I'm taking this. It's called, he's, he uses the phrase muscular compassion. And I just, that, the light bulb went off. It's like, look, yeah, compassion isn't just soft. It's like you got to hold the line, you know, and that's those are some very difficult emotions and fears. And in those in those moments where you're trying to be compassionate to somebody and you need that little bit of muscle behind it to to hold. And that's where I think, you know, you get into the misunderstanding of oh mindfulness is just you know you got to sit and you know all, all's right with the world well not all all's not right necessarily and if you're going to bring that heart to the situation you got to hold the line and that's terribly difficult in so many of these high stress situations highly uh, sensitive situations that we find ourselves in today yeah that's really helpful and i i happen to love the, the i love muscular everything uh, you know, which is not, to <laughs> which is not at all to take away, you know, from the qualities of, you know, the feminine, but I do think, you know, it busts the myth that uh, that mindfulness is something that is passive, uh, that mindfulness is something that doesn't require really our effort, that, you know, like muscular effort. It really, there's some real muscle involved in getting through your own stuff in order to be able to just. Uh, maintain the kind of uh, discipline that it was required to get to the place where you can apply your mindfulness in different directions. Uh, can you tell us a little bit, you know, you said about, you know, it's like whether it's 10 minutes or whether it's a week, you know, tell us a little bit about your practice. You know, it's it's fluctuated a lot in the last few months, you know, with COVID and uh, just the schedule was crazy. And it just, at this point, I've really been focusing on uh, doing a lot of breathing techniques before I go into my meditation. I've done this class with uh, International Association of Human Values, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar's uh, organization, and they have adapted this Kriya Yoga breathing to veterans. And so I've been through the class a few times called Project Welcome Home Troops. It's a it's a power breath workshop where you do all of the different, you know, kind of yogic breathing techniques, pranayama breathing techniques, and apply it to veterans. And I will tell you that I've watched this five-day program, three hours a day, heal veterans. Uh, and they've talked to a lot who have been through the program. I actually went through the program a couple times. It heals and it, it processes the trauma and it settles your mind. And so if you're the kind of person who has a difficult time, like you can imagine people with severe trauma, like uh, vets who've come back with you know, post-traumatic stress or people who have been abused or domestic violence or, you know, trauma is trauma. And, uh, and if it, this breathing helps your nervous system reset, it helps you drop in your meditation a lot better. Uh, Andrew Weil has a great technique called four, seven, eight breathing in for four, hold for seven out for eight. That's tremendously helpful. Uh, and so I've been trying to do that for probably 20 minutes in the morning and then, you know, try to tack on another 10 or 15 minute uh, meditation if I can. Uh, and that's been the practice and then, you know, exercise and 
lift a little weights and do some sprints, high, energy, high, high impact stuff. But that's the meditation practice. And I really like it. I got to tell you, the breathing, I'm like, I'm a breathing guy. This is all about the breath. <laughs> it, is, it is totally all about the breath. And, I, you know, I appreciate, first of all, thank you for reminding me that I'm not doing enough, uh, you know, weightlifting. <laughs> so I'm going to get some weights in there. Uh, I feel like I have, you know, the pen, pen, pandemic middle uh, going on, <laughs> not, not, not hitting the weights. So You are um, not alone. Yeah, and it's, re it's really helpful because I really want, you know, the audience and those folks are like hanging out with us, doing these episodes with us to really hear that uh, even though we speak specifically about meditation at, at times and the instructions, the formal instructions that are given are situated around meditation that for me, and I think likewise for Congressman Ryan, a mindful life is not only about meditation specifically. And uh, I love that you brought that into it you have an idea about something that can be helpful to us collectively as Americans that's actually uh, situated in the, the title of your book, which is Healing America. Can you tell us what it is that you hope for or what it is that you, you believe is possible for us? It's really about healing ourselves. That starts with some kind of contemplative practice, awareness practice, as you said, there's all these variations, breath practice, where you really begin to appreciate what's going on inside. A lot of people don't want to look inward. And there's a lot of stuff maybe in the past you don't want to, you don't want to deal with, but there's no, there's no benefit to the outer community um, necessarily if you don't really, or it's a lesser of an impact if you don't like spend some time really trying to understand what's going on, know thyself. And that then kind of moves itself out into relate what you relate to, what your relationships are with other people, with um, you know your family, your spouse, your dog, your team, your business associates, your colleagues, your church, your you know then your community and your state, and eventually your country and world. So um, to me, it starts with that kind of. Um, going inner. And I think that that will be the, what John calls the orthogonal shift, that real deep shift that we want is going to be when we go inward enough to actually experience the fact that we're all connected here. And that then informs the culture and then the culture will inform the policy. So if I could just say there's this great business phrase, I think it's, it's goes something like, culture eats strategy for breakfast or something like that. Yeah, right? that's, that's right. That's one. Okay. So <laughs> it's one of my I've, favorite. It's one a of my good favorite one. It's so true. Yeah, so good. So I've put my own little twist on that about public policy. Culture will eat policy for breakfast in, in modern times. You can have a 10 point plan and all the solutions that are here and figuring them out. But if the culture doesn't support those policies or the policies don't necessarily come deeply connected to a culture that will support those, it's not going to happen. And so now we have a culture that is grounded in disconnection. We have a culture that's, that's grounded in identifying the other, whether it's through media or neighborhoods or, you know, police versus black lives matter or white people versus immigrants or whatever. It just, we're disconnected and and that's the culture 
And so immigration reform is never going to happen until we shift the culture and the education reforms and the things that we've got to start building connection, Reverend Williams. And when we start figuring out really how to get deeply connected to each other, you do what happened after World War II. That was a generation that was deeply connected to each other because of the depression and the war. And what were the policies that came out of that culture? Policies that were about Medicare, Social Security, um, you know, community development block grants, and eventually led to the civil rights movement and led to the birth of the EPA. Even under a Republican president, Nixon signed the EPA in the law and community development block grants in, in the law. Why? Because the culture was driving the politics. Then we get to 1980, your money's your money, don't worry about anybody else. Well, that culture, I think, is now playing out, hopefully we're at the end of this cycle, of the culture of disconnection, of individualism, you're on your own, no community and all of that. So mindfulness, really that practice, that discipline that we all can maybe take part in to get that deeper connection to ourselves and then to each other will shift the culture and then it's regenerative ag, it's social and emotional learning, it's, you know, uh, capturing carbon, it's, you know, get eventually working our way off of fossil fuel. It's all those things that we talk about all the time, but we don't have the culture right now to support it. That's fantastic. Let, let me restate the things that you said, and then I have a question for you, really specific. So by having a, a mindfulness practice ourselves, by going inward, what we'll discover is our connectedness. We'll discover a connectedness to ourselves and we'll discover our connectedness to others and have that, as John Kabat-Zinn says, the orthogonal shift or, you know, he, he, he's gives real elaborate uh, orthogonal rotation of consciousness. I have no idea what orthogonal <laughs> meant until I met John Kabat-Zinn. So, so yeah. yeah, so, you know, it's like a, tur- it's like a turnaround, right? It's like, yeah. you, it's like a shape. And then you like, you know, you just turn around, everything looks different to you in that your consciousness rotating. So you can just sort of imagine yourself standing in one direction, seeing things in a particular way. And it's really real to you in the way that you see it. And when you have that rotation of consciousness it's like it all turns around. It's not just a kind of 180. It's like a 180 going both directions at one time. So you you get this like real world shift, right? Like in the view that you have, the way that you're able to see things is more complete and more whole. So we get that shift. It shifts how we are. It shifts the kinds of uh, policies that we're making. So we're now thinking about our policies and what it is that's important to us in terms of, uh, you know, connection and what helps each other. What I what I would uh, love you to say is, at some point, you said where the culture we're in now is one that is disconnected, and a culture that is individual. Right? It's about individualism. It's about mine and yours. Name for me, what is the culture that mindfulness practice, that our own individual mindfulness practice will support us in adding into the culture of the community? What is the culture we're going to get out of that as a result of our own practice? Uh, I think e pluribus unum, out of many one. Yeah, that's great. Those are, um, those, and those are foundational. Um, yeah. You know, the eye at the top of the pyramid, you know, the eye of reason of seeing things clearly, 
Uh, we're talking about really getting to healing and coming back to some very, very core concepts that was the foundation of this nation. I have one last thing to ask that it's going to be a really, really important. We have this election coming up. <laughs> Needless to say, you know, there is a lot riding, you know, wherever you are, there is a sense of an enormous amount riding on the outcome of this election. And many of us are in relationship with people that have really different views of the outcome that they want for their election. How do you use your mindfulness practice to navigate, you know, not the people that are like way across the, you know, chasm from you that you don't know and you can just kind of shake your fist at in the digital airwaves and, you know, pretend that you've had some real kind of fight. How do you use your practice to navigate people that are up close to you, um, maybe right in your home or, you know, that you're always on family Zoom calls with and they're in a really, really different place about what they want for the outcomes of the coming election and and even, you know, as a result of that, what they want for what our nation will be from this this enormous shift in you know how we be together as a nation i mean it's just so hard for some of us to see what's happening um as we do and to think that it, it, it's just to us it's so obvious the uh, the pain and the preying on the fears and and division and pitting citizens against each other in in very specific ways is just you know, maddening that you can't see that that's wrong. It, it's hard. It really is. And I think, you know, my wife and I are, you know, two people who we try not to bring things up too much, you know, because it's just so volatile, especially with people you love and you care about. Wayne Gretzky used to have the saying of, you don't skate to where the puck is, you skate to where the puck is going. And that's evidently what made him so great. Part of me is like, I talked about these, we didn't really get into them too much, but these issues that are really um, core issues that are uh, root causes of problems and how to, you know, what are the solutions to really solve those problems? Those issues actually aren't divisive. <laughs> you know, you're talking about like building carbon into the soil to make sure that the food has more nutrients so that uh, our you know, our food is healthier and our bodies can heal and the, and the ground can hold more rain and withstand more droughts and prevent floods. And, you know, and there are Republican regenerative ag farmers and there are libertarian regenerative ag farmers and there are liberal regenerative ag farmers who all agree on what we need to do moving forward. Same with social and emotional learning. It has the support of the Brookings Institution, and, uh, in a, which is a left-leaning uh, institution um, and another right-wing uh, institution. Uh, and, and so that has bipartisan support because it's about emotional health. It's about trauma. It's about, you know, so skating where the puck is, like, where do we need to be? How is an, building an electric vehicle, Democrat or Republican or liberal or conservative? And I, I think that my hope is obviously that, you know, Vice President Biden becomes president and that we can lay out an agenda around those issues. Yeah. And you know, what occurred to me as you were speaking, if we also have this mindful practice from wherever our, you know, cultural, uh, religious, faith, spiritual, not religious orientation and location is, out of that good heartedness, out of that awareness of our connection to each other, that we're not going to create an environment, we're not going to create a nation that is going to be devastating 
to the people that, you know, that didn't win their president, right? Like they're, we're going to still recognize that we're connected and that we want everyone to thrive. And that doesn't mean that we get all of our boxes checked, but that we are creating a space, we're creating a nation, if you will, that allows us to be e pluribus unum. Like that's what's going to happen, you know, that we're, it's, it does not have to be this winner take all uh, when we understand ourselves as all connected. So if I'm all, if it's like, you know, we're all, we're all, all, and we, we get to see that, you know, even the solutions that I may come up with demand of me to create room for you to have, you, you know, your sense of thriving life. Again, that doesn't mean we agree on everything. It doesn't mean you get all your boxes, but yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, go, let's go with the puck. The, the puck is going. Yeah. Um, and we're yeah. Um, really trying to understand that their fear, whether it looks like bullshit to us, there may be some real fear there that is real to them anyway, flipping them the bird is not going to make the problem better. We're just going to be, you know, the, the politics is going to go one way in two years and back two years, and we're going to be back and forth because there's not a real open-heartedness to understand and maybe, you know, relieve some of those fears because they're not true. I absolutely agree. And uh, I really applaud you. And, and I'm, I'm really grateful, you know, to the commitment and the and the courage because there is so much about the way that our uh, institutions are structured that, uh, you know, would make it easy for you to just have this practice and keep it for yourself. But you instead are choosing to make this commitment to, you know, really bring your mindfulness practice into the work that you do, the policy, the ideas of the policy, and helping people to understand how we can have solutions that are really about going to the root cause, which I think is exactly what we all need, regardless of where we stand, regardless of what party uh, we are uh, attached to or connected to, regardless of our religion. You know, this is why I call you Congressman Everyman. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Congressman Tim Ryan as much as I did. And through it, I hope you got to see how your own personal mindfulness practice can contribute to navigating your work, cultivating better relationships, and even help you to generate creative solutions to what are potentially very big problems. One of the things that I got out of the conversation is how you can use your mindfulness practice to really look at the root causes of the challenges that you're facing in your life and use your mindfulness practice to come up with those big solutions in the way that the congressman did. Thank you for listening to Mindful by Design. If you're a person that already has a mindfulness practice and you'd like to either deepen it or you would like to learn more about how you can extend and share mindfulness practice with other people, you might be interested in the mindfulness certification and training program that I'm running at mindfulcertification.com. That's M-N-D-F-L certification.com. You can just think of it as mindful without the vowels. Join us next time for another awakening conversation. To get the most out of this course, Check out the guided meditations that accompany each episode, available only on the Himalaya Learning Platform. 
Himalaya Learning is an audio learning platform that provides bite-sized courses from world-class thinkers and industry experts to fuel your personal and professional growth. To access exclusive content for this course and others like it, go to Himalaya.com mindful and enter promo code mindful at checkout for your first 14 days free. We hope you enjoy.